if you've been with us for a while, you know that we've been going through the book of Ephesians. Um, in Ephesians chapter 2, there's a very strong emphasis on um, reconciliation across the invisible lines of human enmity. That in Christ, not only are we reconciled to God, chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, but that we are reconciled to each other in Christ no matter what walls of hostility naturally exist between us as human beings. Does that make sense? Because we're made one family and one people in Christ. Um, we talked about that two weeks ago. Menohar preached on it. I preached on it last week. And um, some of you know that I ascribe to Larry Osborne's idea about why church should be boring, okay? Church should not be boring because it's terrible. Church should be boring because mastery, it comes on the far side of boredom. So at first you, you're familiar with something, you're like, oh, that's interesting. And then we tell it to you again, and it, you like have to go over it again and again, and it gets, it gets boring. But the only thing that will change your life, the only thing that will come up inside of you when you need it, is what you've mastered. It's the only thing you really have, okay? And so when it comes to the belief that the dividing walls of hostility for the Christian have really come down, one of the great difficulties with living that out is we think that if we're familiar with it and we approve of it, that that matters. It doesn't matter, okay? What matters is if we master it. So that when we see someone who is on the other side of a natural dividing wall of hostility, the first thing that comes up in us is they bear the image of God. We are one in Christ. My dividing wall with them is illegitimate. That has to come up immediately in our hearts, okay? And the only way to do that is to bore ourselves with attending to that truth until it's deeply part of us, okay? So here's what I would like to do. For something like the next 20 weeks, what I would like is from someone at High Point Church to give a short testimony about their personal experience inside this local church in particular of feeling a dividing wall of hostility. Not in a preachy, condescending, sanctimonious way, but just a sharing kind of way. Like, I have felt this. And it's, it's not fun. And for us to be like, oh my gosh, you felt that. That's terrible. That's not what we want. And for us to attend to it with our mind and our heart and to pray about it. And I want to do it as, for as many testimonies as we can get, okay? So if, if you have an experience in church, especially here, or in our immediate community, where you—it you doesn't have to be like outright racism, but you just know you, you didn't feel like you were on the inside. You didn't feel connected. You felt like people didn't want to talk to you. And it can be because of the color of your skin. It could be because of your gender. It could, be, it could be because you think you weigh too much. Well, I don't care what it is. I don't care what human dividing wall of sanctimonious hostility you have felt. If you have felt one honestly— and you're willing to write a short reflection on it so we can hear you and then pray about it and attend to it until we master it, please send us an email. We'll get together. Nicole is going to be over some of this stuff, helping put these together. And we'll get these testimonies together. And we—because we have to attend to this until we're not just familiar with it, we don't just approve of it, and we're not even just bored of it, but until our hearts master it. Does that make sense? So this morning we're going to start with Patrick— Lathane, who's on, been on our missions team. He served a ton at High Point. He's a great and dear brother. And so I wanted you to be able to hear some of his story and for us to pray about this before we get into the rest of the sermon. Thanks, Patrick. Stand up there. My name is Patrick Lathane. Uh, my parents are from Burma, which is a Southeast Asian country next to, in between India and Thailand. 
I grew up in an extremely Caucasian small town and faced insensitive remarks, looks, and stares because of the color of my skin. My wife, Allison, is as blonde and white as they come. And together, we regularly face the you guys don't belong together looks and stares. We live in Waitakee, Wisconsin. It's actually a nickname of Waitakee among the teenagers. Because of how the Lord has blessed me and what he has allowed and enabled me to accomplish in my financial status, in my education, and in my career, I've lived most of my life looking at the world through white eyes. I've experienced tremendous acceptance in my friend, work, and church circles. And yet, due to the color of my skin, I've faced various kinds of discrimination in general social settings from people that don't know me. Just a few years ago, I was on a bike ride in Middleton on Airport Road, just around the corner from here. I was riding along at a good pace, and all of a sudden, a car pulls up next to me and follows alongside me. It's a group of teenagers, and they all begin shouting racial slurs just a few feet from my face. After a few moments, they sped up and took off. There were so many emotions that ran through my mind in the next few minutes as I processed what happened. First, the stinging hurt of those words shouted with pure hatred in their faces, sunk in, along with feelings that I really don't belong here. Those thoughts didn't last as I quickly realized it was just a group of young, ignorant fools. Next, feelings of disillusionment set in. How is it possible that this type of thing can happen in this day and age in such a great part of the country that is regularly ranked among the best places to live in America? Next came the thoughts of sadness that as a society, we really haven't advanced beyond this. And then came the thoughts of fear that rattled me for quite a while. A genuine fear for what could have happened if we were just a little bit farther west on a country road with no one else around. I'm not up here to sound like an innocent victim. What Manohar and Nick said about the realities of the invisible walls that we all put up challenged me to recognize my own prejudiced thoughts towards people of a lower class or even to fellow minorities that don't think, act, or talk like me. I'm part of the problem. We're all part of the problem. And we all need to be part of the solution. I don't see a clear path forward. I honestly don't have faith that things are going to change much anytime soon. I've faced a lifetime of marginalization due to the color of my skin. However, I am filled with a great deal of hope. It's an everlasting hope that is rooted in the gospel message. I have faith in my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who can break down any kind of wall that exists. I do believe that the church is the best place for real, substantive change to begin and where healing can occur. My desire is that the people of High Point Church will choose to be a part of the solution, whatever that might look like going forward. Helping to raise awareness is just a small way that I can be a part of positive change in this church that I love. Thank you.
um, dealing with the dividing walls of hostility in our society will inevitably become a political and policy-based controversy. But one of the things that the church should be able to get straight is that uh, racism is part of tribalism, and tribalism is part of the flesh and resides in every single human heart. It is, a, it is a natural production of the bonding instinct that God gave us and the brokenness of that belonging instinct in the fall and in the flesh. And therefore, it is 100% predictable in the heart of every sinner, which is all of us. And so we don't have to say, those are the bad people and we're the good people. What we have to say is, just like we are going to face lust and pride and wrath and envy— our hearts are going to be filled with the negative implications of our own tribalisms. It's universal. We all have to deal with it. It's part of all of our sanctification, our growth in Christ, to be renewed, to care about those we're supposed to care about without hating the ones outside of that group. And so, <clears throat> as believers, we should have incredibly powerful internal and spiritual and philosophical resources to deal with that among ourselves to become family here. No matter what our differences in politics or policy prescriptions for how we should try to adjudicate this in the unbelieving society. It is within the church we are demanded to be a city on a hill. And then in charity and in mutual love can we argue with each other in real candor about how we should participate in the political and policy-based decisions about our city and about our state and about our world. Does that make sense? So let's pray together. God, I pray right now that you would— um, bring up in the hearts of some people in this room the courage to be the next person to give a testimony. We know that, we believe that anybody who comes up here is going to be accepted and loved, but we also know that it is unnerving and, and a fearful thing to stand up in front of people and be honest and open and with candor um, and to admit that even though you have been attacked, you are also part of the problem as a human being and that you love the church and you want us to grow. And so, Father, I thank you for Patrick. I pray that you would raise up in some people the courage to do this so that we can stay attending to this until our hearts emotionally more master the centrality of you destroying every dividing wall of hostility. And then we pray for us as a church family together and as individual believers. Father, will you not just teach us the philosophical truth that we are one in Christ, one body, but would you help our emotions learn it down to the level of our instincts, where this comes from, so that on a primal level we are reordered to try to make deeper and closer relationships with the people who are near us that you have given us on the basis of what they are in you and in your image rather than just what we recognize Will you help us in this church to be the body of Christ, to be one, to recognize that our oneness comes from our one faith, our one baptism, our one profession, the one spirit we all receive, that we have one God and Father of us all. And would you help to make that fundamentally primary for us in a way that's very difficult? Will you convict us negatively when our flesh rails against it? And will you come alongside of us and push us forward when we're willing in humility to accept it? And will you help us not to deal, not to think merely in terms of the macro awareness stuff about 
about what the, quote, state of the nation is, but help us to start with the feelings that come up in our own hearts in the moment that we do them, and to show other people that we care, that we accept them, that they're welcome because you have welcomed them. And help us to offer friendship in ways that make people feel as though you love them and they're part of your body, and we know that. I pray that um, we, we know that we can't make it so that no person in this community ever has the experience Patrick had. We know there's always going to be outliers who will do terrible things. Father, but we want the first feeling of those who belong to our body to be, oh, those people must be a tiny, tiny, tiny minority because everyone else I know loves me. Help us to live this out the way you want us to. Help us to make it as real in the body of Christ as we believe in the reality of our personal salvation. Help us to believe the whole chapter of Ephesians 2, not just the first 10 verses. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> okay, so I have good news and bad news. The good news is that um, one of the ways we, um, we write the sermon schedule is in a thing like Ephesians, I will leave in a couple of blank Sundays, assuming we're going to get behind so that when we get to those Sundays, we can sort of catch up the passages in the Bible. Otherwise, like, you get, we get off one Sunday, we have to change like 16 months worth of schedule, which is just unhelpful. And then if, and then if we're caught up, then we can like do some kind of like, here's what's going on at High Point, or the pastor can share his heart on something. And so we're at one of those weeks, and we're caught up. And so that means you're kind of at my whim, spiritually speaking, for what we're going to talk about. And so um, what we're going to do for a few minutes here is— um, we're going to go from like the 500 feet level on Ephesians 1 to 3 up to just like the 5,000 foot level. I want to talk about what the book of Ephesians is doing. Because it's really easy to go through each passage and look at each passage and say, okay, this, this one says this, and this one says that, and this one says that. And miss as a whole what the book of Ephesians is doing to us, what it's supposed to be doing to us, Right? It's like going to basketball practice every day or some kind of a music practice or, or some kind of thing where you're mastering something every day and you're just thinking about the drill or the thing you're doing and you're not thinking, I'm doing this so that I can become an athlete, so I can become a musician. It's like the point of the thing, right? What's the point of Ephesians? Right? That's what I want to get at for a few minutes. Now, one of the things that we have to recognize about our our particular moment, right? In order to be discerning, we have to know what are the universal truths that never change— and how are those being affected by the particulars of the moment that we're in, right? One of the things that never changes about human beings is people have always been seeking our attention, right? Lovers have always sought each other's attention. Children have always sought their parents' attention. Parents have always tried to get their children's attention. Like people, right, politicians have always tried to get the people on their side. Everybody's always sought the attention of others, right? You can, you can go to a, a marketplace in a very undeveloped place, and people who are selling are using their voice to try to get people's attention, right? However, one of the things that, that modernity, economic modernity, political modernity, technological modernity has created is a world in which there is an enormous amount of very direct competition, very aggressive competition, and very proximate competition for your attention. Everyone wants your attention. People selling things want your attention. 
Everybody who wants to make their own YouTube channel so they can be famous wants your attention. Everybody on social media wants your attention. Every meme creator wants your attention. Every politician wants your attention. Every pornographer wants your attention. Everyone wants your attention. And they have all kinds of incredible technologies to do it. And they are, they are using cheats and hacks from neuroscience to appeal to the most visceral parts of you. Right? Like we know that there are algorithms in Facebook to promote things that will make you angry because human beings are 10 times more effective by negative emotion. You'll be drawn to it. You will feel angry. You'll feel that pleasureful rush of self-righteousness. And you will want to click on things and post them and tell everybody how you're right. And then you'll make comments with your like on your mother's aunt's sister's father's, brother's, dog's Facebook page about how their politics are wrong. And like, you'll feel so good about it and feel like you've spent that three hours in front of your screen so well, you know. And it's—a lot of that really just comes from this—everybody's need for your attention because you need people's attention to make money and to get ahead and to win campaigns and to be loved. And— The, the problem that is, is that if, if you're not careful, what happens is your, your visceral self, your fleshly self, to use the biblical language, right? One of the things the flesh does is it, it gives attention to things. That's kind of how it functions, right? It, it basically says, let's give our attention to that. And the, the stuff that it wants to give its attention to, one of the, one of the words Paul uses in another epistle is, is just your stomach. People are just ruled by their stomach. He just basically means ruled by your nervous system, okay? Like you, you decide what to do based on what your central nervous system wants to do rather than what your mind would want to do if it could get free of that and really think clear thoughts, right? I mean, if you imagine for a second, every Sunday at two o'clock, right? you enter this, like, sensory deprivation room. Like, there's nothing on the walls. There's a couple candles or something, you know, and, like, a really blank desk. And there's, like, a person sitting across from you dressed in very plain clothes that you, like, generally like. And they have a list and a pencil, and they're like, okay, I have 40 options here. You're going to pick the five things you want to focus your attention on this week, okay? And they slide the paper. There's no music. There's no distractions. You spend like 20 minutes in that room with that person calmly walking you through your 40 options, and you pick the four or five or six things you're going to give your attention to that week, right? That's—how different is that than how you presently decide what to give your attention to throughout your week, right? For most of us, it's—those are supposed to be— If I said, now write down all the—watch this movie of you this week. Write down all the things you gave your attention to. How different is that list from the deprivation room list that you would set? Right? What's the difference between those two things? The difference between those two, two things is how much your flesh dominates you. That's the difference between those two things. Right? Because if you take time and pray, let's say, and God is imaginatively sitting beside, across from you, and you're praying in a quiet place, and you write in a journal what you should give yourself to this week, and then you go out and you do something different, what is the difference? Because you're kind of in your best mind when you're praying. You—part of what prayer does is it sets you in a more spiritual frame. It separates you from the immediate stream of sensory excitement, and it allows you to make more like reasoned, settled decisions. That, in, in that sense, when you are most mystical is when you are most rational, in that sense. 
which is kind of a paradox, but it's true, right? And what we also don't recognize on top of that is, for human beings, what we give our attention to is what shapes us, right? The, the clearest indicator or predictor of what you will be in five years is what you're giving your attention to now or have been for the last five years, right? Hu- See, we don't want to believe this, but human beings are imitators, very few of us do anything like real analysis, right? We, we clone and we copy. That's how we live. That's how we work. That's how we change. There are some cultures that don't even do this kind of teaching, and yet they still exist because they just—they realize that the way you teach kids is they just copy you. You just do it, and they watch you, and then they do it. That's, that is how people learn. And most of us, the way we learn, the way we've been shaped, how we even feel is basically on the basis of imitation. In that sense, you are far more likely in five years to be more like the people you eat with than what your prayers are like, right? Now that sounds like blasphemy, right? A little bit. But here's the thing. How often do you pray? For real. How often do you really pray? So for most of us, it's very sporadically and not for very long. And we don't actually pull ourselves away from the world and the flesh long enough to really quiet our minds. So we try to pray, but we're still so plugged into the world in our mind and in our, in our, everything's still running so fast that we don't actually get into the kind of frame of mind, the frame of emotion and affections that actually lets us be ourselves, separated from the immediate stream of sensory experience. And so our prayers don't shape us like they're meant to. And yet, the shortcut to spiritual growth—sorry about the voice cracks. I am 42. <laughs> the shortcut to spiritual growth, if you are dominated by the flesh, which most of us are, is to get your spiritual growth through a, a direct, directly physical means, right? The more advanced you become spiritually, sometimes the easier it is to engage with God in more mystical means and to be transformed by it. But early on, that's often very, very difficult. Well, what's the best cheat for that? Well, the best cheat is to get your spirituality in the most physical and copying sort of way there is. That is, directly through the people you're around. You pick who to be with. You'll naturally imitate them, and you'll naturally be affected and influenced by them. Does that make sense? And so, for most of us, what is most predictive of our spirituality, even five years from now, is not even how we pray, but who we're around. Who we give our attention to. Right? So you can, you can think of it this way. Everything will depend—it's not demand. It will depend on your attention, right? So you can think about it this way, too, that God, all throughout Scripture, is trying to get our attention. One of the big themes of Christian scripture is that human beings were created to give their attention to God and to each other for tasks related to his will, and we continually give our attention to everything else we're not supposed to. And so in redemption, one of the things that God is doing is, is solving the sin problem rift between us, but what he's also trying to do is get our attention. Right? In, in beautiful ways, he's trying to get our attention. Right? And so he does these, these big acts in history, and he, he speaks and shows himself in Revelation, and he gives truth-speaking prophets throughout the Old Testament. And then he, he comes in the person of his son, and he dies on a cross and rises from the dead. These are all both acts that, 
bring about and have wrought redemption for us in what they've accomplished, but they're also meant to have a certain kind of spiritual and moral beauty that get our attention. And God's constantly saying, give me your attention. And as a lover, he is inviting your attention. And as a God and king, he is demanding your attention. And both are equally legitimate. Right? And so Colossians is the sister epistle to Ephesians. If you read them side by side, they read very similarly. They have very similar language. They cover very similar themes. And they're actually written to two places fairly close to each other. Ephesus is the second largest city in the Roman Empire on the coast. And then I think it's like 50 or 70 miles inland in the Lycus River Valley are three towns, Colossae, Laodicea, and Heriopolis, I think they are. And they're right all next to each other on this river. It was actually like a—they were like spa towns, actually. It was kind of a strange thing. And um, he wrote a letter to the Laodiceans, and he wrote a letter, which we don't have, and he wrote a letter to the Colossians. But similar themes, probably same imprisonment. He probably wrote them very close in time to each other. And in Colossians, he says a similar thing to what he's doing in Ephesians. He explicitly says it in Colossians like this. He says, Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Do you remember that language from Ephesians chapter 1? That you've been raised with Christ in the heavenly places? Since you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Do you see the claim there? That's, it's, it's very direct. What God is demanding, what God wants from us, and the thing that transforms us and changes us, the things that free us, the, what will allow us to actually believe the gospel and stop living in religion and therapy, but actually will lead us to a soul-filled, disciplined, God-honoring, gracious, striving in Christ which will allow us to become the people we're meant to be and have integrity within ourselves and know what we were called to and actually live in the familial and friendship relationships that we're called to comes from this. That's what we're told to do. To set our hearts on Christ and to set our minds on things above and then the negative, not on earthly things. Right? And so you could say something like this as kind of the heart of this, of what Ephesians is doing as a whole. That what you give your attention to is probably the most important thing about you. Right? What you give your attention to is probably the most important thing about you. Now, obviously that's not literally true, right? The fact that you are objectively created in the image of God is the most important thing about you. Whether or not you belong to Christ is literally the most important thing about you, right? However, Depending on what you give your attention to will determine whether or not you really believe you're made in God's image. Whether you act like you believe you're made in God's image. Whether you treat other people like they're made in God's image. Whether or not you feel made in God's image will depend almost entirely on what you give your attention to. Do you give your attention to that truth? Do you meditate on that truth? Does that truth affect you deeply? Or doesn't it? Right? Or you're like, well, what about Christ? Well, all of Ephesians and Colossians are focused on us giving our attention to Christ so that we can actually become the thing we've believed. We can become the thing we've been declared to be. Basically, all of the Christian life is to actually become, in practice and being, what you are declared in a moment when you believe in Christ, both individually and together. Does that make sense? So God counts you perfectly just in Christ— and then by setting your heart and mind on that, you are drawn to be more just in your life. He counts you loved. He proves you loved in Christ. And so then, 
by meditating, setting your heart and mind on that, you grow in learning that you are loved in Christ and learning how to love other people. It is through that means that we be begin to become what we have been declared. That is how people change in Christ. That's how we're meant to change in Christ. And so therefore, what you give your attention to is probably the most important thing about you. Okay, let's look at that from a couple of angles. So at High Point, we've, we've talked about this in, with this language, that we have to, as Christians, escape diversion and embrace discipline. Right? And you can think of discipline from a Christian perspective as what you give your attention to. And you can—diversion is literally the diversion of your attention. Because everything's fighting for your attention, right? And so we have to escape and eliminate distractions, and we have to learn to give ourselves to the right things, right? And you have to do both the negative and the positive. You can't just be like, well, I'll just—I'll just make sure I have devotions. Listen, you're not going to do your devotions until you stop flipping through Instagram. You're not going to actually attend—you're not going to go to worship on Sunday morning until you start going to bed at the right time on Saturday night. And until you adjudicate your week properly, you're not going to be emotionally prepared, structurally prepared, financially prepared, personally prepared to come to church. And so you won't. Or if, if you don't—if you don't structure your parenting throughout the week, you'll be terrified to bring your kids to children. There's all kinds of things and ways and stuff that happens that when we give ourselves to diversion, not at the moment we want to focus on God, but before that, when the moment comes to focus on God, we can't. If you flip through channels every 12 seconds, right? Or if you flip through memes, or if you read the first paragraph of everything, and then you sit down with your Bible for 30 minutes, right? Can you read for 30 whole minutes? Right? It's hard. Right? And it was the diversions from before. It's not the diversion in that moment, but the diversions from before and how they have shaped you. But here's the good news. Discipline shapes you too. It can shape, start shaping you right now. It's already been shaping you in the places you've been disciplined. You start actually doing some of this stuff and you start moving in the other direction. But you have to do both. You have to do the negative act of fighting diversion. You have to do it every day. And, okay, so I'll be a little specific here. You either need a written plan or a plan that you, can, you have told people from whom you receive shame freely. Okay? So, like, I, have, I don't receive shame freely from anyone. Like, if you come up to me and you're like, you're little, and you just like lay into me, and you're, you'd probably be 80% right, whatever you said, right? And, but I wouldn't feel ashamed because I'd be like, I don't know if I'm going to take this. Like, I, like, I, this doesn't seem like, right? But there are certain people who I know care about me. I know they know me, right? And I don't have to deliberate whether I'm going to receive that from them. Like, I still try when people tell me off or whatever. But like, my wife can say, hey, you're doing that wrong. And I'm just like, I received that. I'm ashamed of myself. I should, I, you're right. There's some people, and so I, I want to tell my wife, and okay, this will really, you want to, you want to really test it? Tell your teenagers or your kids what you're not going to do when you're not going to watch television, when you're not going to be on your screens, when you're going to go to bed at night. When, like, you start, you tell your teenage kids what you're going to do, right? Oh, man, they're merciless. <laughs> right? But it'll help. It'll help. It helps me. It'll help you probably. Okay, let's keep moving. All right, so let's go through two parts. The first, what you give your attention to is probably the most— the next is going to be who. Isn't that clever? Okay, so the first is what you give your attention to is going to be one of the most important things about you. So if you look at the structure— of Ephesians 1 to 3. In chapter 1, there is a long description of what has happened in Christ from verses 1 to 14. And that is 
That is a, a telling of what you can set your mind on and what you can set your heart on. It is a statement of the truths that make up all that's happened to you if you believe in Christ and all that will happen to you if you believe in Christ. And it starts, and it, and it says that you were chosen, predestined, adopted, loved, saved by grace. Like it says all kinds of amazing things that have happened to you that you can set your heart and mind on and that will change you if you do so. And then, right, in verses 115 to 23, there is a prayer that God would give you the power to grasp those things. So you see how that works? Do you see? That's the implicit theology of how we change. Right? I think that's actually the next slide. Right? The implicit theology—okay, where are we here? Okay. The implicit theology of how we change is that you and I are called to set our hearts and minds on God and the gospel truths. That's what we think about. And then somebody is praying for me. What is he asking God to do? That I would have the strength, right? The word strength is used, but it's actually the strength to grasp the truth. The strength. Um, the second one, this one right here, which I'll preach on in a couple of weeks, 314 to 21. That one really focuses on this. About having the strength to see, the strength to grasp, the, the strength to like think about that thing and for it to really affect you on your deepest affections and to affect how you see yourself and everybody else in a way you've never before that's so powerful that you exclaim what Ephesians starts with, blessed is the God who has blessed us with everything for the praise of his glory. And so that the effect is worship. You'll know this has happened because you will feel in your heart and mind the desire to appreciate God. That's when you know that you've grasped it. When what rises up in you in the study or in the meditation or the thinking or the consideration, when inside of you, you feel, God is so great. That is so amazing. That is so good. That is so interesting. I've never thought of it that way. That's so helpful. You have that feeling and you want to thank God for it. Then you know you've started to grasp it and it's changing you. Right? All right. Now, you got to realize this is not just an intellectual thing. Okay? This church, okay, listen to me partly because of the weaknesses of my personality, our church inordinately draws excessively conscious people. Okay? That's a phrase from Jung. People who like, they control their emotions with their conscious thought, and they're very disciplined people. They tend to be educated white-collar people, and they're like, I can control all my feelings. I don't have to feel them. Right? And that is actually not a good way to live. It's actually tearing yourself out of integrity with yourself. You're, it's not a whole way to live. And after a while, usually your body revolts against you with like anxiety and depression and panic attacks and frustration. And, or you like decide that all those bad feelings are really your wife's fault or your husband's fault or your kid's fault or your job's fault. It's not a good way to live. You, it doesn't have a future. We are meant not just to think certain thoughts about God, but we're supposed to set our hearts on them. Right? They're meant to interact with us emotionally. And, and on levels of our deepest sort of instinctual, like our sense of security, our sense of fear, our deepest hopes, our fear of death, right? And if you can't admit how embarrassed you are in certain situations and how humiliated you feel about this thing or that memory or like how inferior you feel to p certain people in your life, and if, like if you can't let that stuff come up, you're never really going to set your heart on the gospel in a way that interacts with it and intersects it in a way to change how you feel about it. 
And you're not just repressing your feelings, you're repressing the gospel. You're, you're depre- it's like taking antibiotics and then drinking a bunch of alcohol. Right? You took the medicine, but then you did something else that specifically makes it not work. And so part of spiritual growth is the opening of your whole heart to God. Especially the things you are not wanting to think about, that you're not wanting to feel, that you're not wanting to admit to yourself, that you don't even know you don't know them. And that's one of the reasons why just studying the Bible isn't enough. You have to pray. You have to meditate. You have to stop and let yourself feel certain things. And, and ask yourself why you feel them, and then ask God why you feel them, and actually let them, let the thing percolate a little bit. You know what I'm going to say next? You know what I'm going to say next, right? But that can't happen if what? That kind of thing can't happen until you unplug yourself from the stream. Can you imagine trying to do that plugged into the stream of immediate sensory experience? With your phone turned on and within 30 feet of you? It'll never happen. Ever. Right? Okay, let's keep moving. I can't I don't have time for that. Okay. How do we do this? Right? How do we do this? We're only halfway through the sermon, and there's five minutes left, okay? This is going to be fun. How do we do this? There's two ways to do this. One is by rhythm, and one is by ritual. Okay, I'm simplifying, obviously. One is by rhythm. You have to order your life in certain rhythms so that you're doing what you want to do, what you believe that you should do, right? You got to order your life that way, right? So for some of us, it's a bedtime, right? You got to go to bed on time. Wake up in the morning. If you go to bed on time and you wake up in the morning, just that, just that, you'll look at less porn and you'll, you'll read your Bible more. Because you'll wake up in the morning fresh and you'll have the willpower. You're at, you'll be at the peak of your physiological willpower and you'll know this is the time to read the Bible and you will go and read your Bible. And when you stay up late, you have the lowest amount of willpower you have for the day. Your visceral self has the most power and it's just so easy to just click on stuff you're trying not to click on. Just simple rhythm stuff. It's simple rhythm stuff. Eat with people instead of alone. There's all kinds of simple rhythm things when you exercise, what you do, and those kinds of things set you up for something better. It's one of the reasons why for personal devotional times, people will be like, do it the same time every day in the same place. It's not because the Holy Spirit won't be able to find you. Like if you go to Starbucks instead of Bariks, right? Like it's not, Holy Spirit's not going to be like, I thought she was going to be a Bariks. She's always here. This is terrible. It's for you. It's because we are these creatures of habit. And see, we don't want to believe that about ourselves. We want to believe we're inventing our being every moment and that we're maximally emotionally free and we can create this kaleidoscope of color out of our authentic hearts in any moment we want and therefore rhythm and ritual hold us back. And that is romantic poppycock. It has nothing to do with human, what human beings really are. The things that really free us are rhythms and rituals. Practices you do over and over that shape you, and schedules that you do over and over that shape you. Some of those rituals are things like worship. <laughs> Coming to worship and worshiping in worship. Okay, I'm gonna, I might offend you now, okay? I say this in as non-judgmental way as I can. Coming to church on time helps with this. Just, just a thought. Okay. Um, 
attending to the truth and reading the scriptures and listening to preaching and reading Christian books, including Christian biography. All of those are very helpful things to do. The ordinances of baptism and communion are very important. To go to baptism and witness other people being baptized is part of the ordinance. As they take on the name of Jesus, as we look at their spiritual death and resurrection, we are reaffirming in ourselves what we have done in that, right? And doing baptism is commanded by, as we call it an ordinance. An ordinance means Jesus ordered us to do it. It's a non-optional event. The church has literally argued for 2,000 years whether or not you can even be saved if you're not baptized, okay? Most Baptists, which we have emerged from the Baptist tradition, believe that it's just a—it's a sign. You have to believe in Jesus. But listen, man, I don't know—I'm not sure that's right. I'm just pretty sure that's right. There's, there's nobody—because there's nobody in the Bible who gets saved who doesn't get baptized. There's no—there's no example to be like, like the guy—you're like, what about the guy on the cross? You know, maybe it was raining or something, right? And you're like, you're like, okay, so if—fine, if you accept Jesus in the whole time between when you accept Jesus in your death, you are nailed to wood. We will give you a pass. Like, clearly, Jesus gives people a pass if they're impaled on wood and bleeding to death, okay? So if that's you, you're totally exempt from getting baptized. But there's no reasonable example of the Bible of anybody who doesn't believe and get baptized immediately on their own profession of faith, immediately following their belief. Right? We're all like, you know, like 2019 casual about it. Like, you know, if you want to get baptized, like we're going to have this, like, it's going to be sunny. And like, I'm picking on Ashley. (laughs) We're going to have a barbecue. There's going to be desserts. It's great. There's already water. It's already water with seaweed in it, you know? And that's all true. But that's not—the po- the point is it's a ritual in, in communion and—okay, we got to keep moving here. All right. All right, let's do like four more minutes, and, and then I'll stop. Okay, so who you give your attention to is probably the most important thing about you. Who—I already talked about how, um, how who you eat with in some ways is more important than who you pray with, given certain assumptions, right? That's kind of where this is going. Okay, so there's three ways you can think about how we can discipline ourselves to give ourselves— Give attention to who we should give our attention to. You can split it into three groups, right? One is fellowship, those God, whom God has given us to make us stronger and to care for us. Two, unity and solidarity. Who has God made us one with that we're not easily one with, that we have to actually be disciplined about becoming one with? And third, hospitality. Who has God placed close with you who is a stranger who needs to become closer, right? And so in terms of fellowship— All of chapters 4 and 5 are going to talk about what we are together. Chapter 4 is the church. Chapter 5 talks about social relationships, including the family and children and so on, and work. Um, And so one of the things Ephesians is doing is saying how we are related to each other, right? In terms of fellowship. And fellowship can be an anodyne word, but it's meant to be people who are bound to you for a journey who will never leave you what fellowship is supposed to mean. And those people are meant to strengthen you, and so therefore, this is why we have, for example, small groups. Small groups are one of our main mechanisms of fellowship, of giving our attention to Christ by giving our attention to each other as we follow Christ. And in that fellowship, we can be transformed in a way that oftentimes we cannot be transformed. Does that make sense? Unless we have a very robust group of Christian friends that create a similar kind of situation. In fact, that's what, that's what small groups are, 
right? People in this, in this millennium so far don't know how to make close friends and create fellowship. We've lost the capacity for hospitality and deep friendship. So we as the church have artificially created a ministry that simulates human friendship. That's what it is. Because the average American has one or zero friends who are close confidants. And so we've had to, as a church, spend tens of thousands of dollars every year to create an artificial human gathering mechanism ministry called small groups so that we can guilt people through a church ministry into contexts in which they can develop what they viscerally, personally, completely humanly need that we've become very bad at creating because of what's vying for our attention, how we give that stuff our attention, and how it diverts and distracts us from the deepest and most meaningful things in human life. Listen, you guys, I would love to fire Aaron Hesse. Like, no, like, I love Aaron. She is so fantastic. Nothing would give me more pleasure than to, like, have to reappropriate her to another job or something. And, like, everybody just naturally makes friends with 7 to 12 people. You all naturally get together. Everybody's included. You're including people who aren't cool and aren't pretty and aren't rich. And, like, everybody's in one of these things. And it's all totally natural. And we could just get rid of the small groups ministry. That's what—that's what Jesus would want. I would think it would be awesome, okay? I have very little hope that's going to happen soon. Right? But that's what we're meant to be and do together, right? So I'm trying to give you the theology of it. So that maybe at least, at, the, at least the ministry will be easier, right? Okay, secondly, unity and solidarity. I'm sorry, I'm going through this so fast. And this is important stuff. I'm sorry. Okay, so um, we have to become one with what God has made us one with, okay? So Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, that is our salvation. You have to become one with yourself, Sin sets you out of joint with yourself. You lose your integrity as a human being. And one of the things the gospel is doing is like putting you back together to reform and reconstitute and re-enliven the image of God in you, right? And us with each other. And that is something that is going to have to be as deliberate as your sanctification. So if you're like, if I say, what do you do to grow spiritually? You're like, well, I go to church, and I read my Bible, and I listen to this podcast, and I blah, 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 right? Hopefully it's a number of things, right? Hopefully you're being deliberate about it. Okay, great. Becoming one as a people together, as a united group of people, in solidarity with each other, across the natural dividing walls of hostility, will require just as much spiritual intentionality, and in a sense, it's just as much a part of our sanctification. In fact, a lot of our personal individual sanctification comes from loving people who it's hard for us to love. In some ways, it's doing the second one in which we make a lot more progress in this first one. And my relationship with Harold has been a lot like that. He's not wearing his favorite tie in that picture, though. Okay, so— I, Oh, man. And then the last one is hospitality, including people who aren't included, okay? So step one is recognizing that the person— that you don't know, that doesn't look included, is made in God's image, and it is your pleasure and your honor to talk to them and to serve them and to include them. That is your privilege. I don't care what they look like to you. It's your privilege to do that, and that's based on the doctrine of the image of God in every person, even every unsaved person. Every human being has the image of God, right? It's the basis of what the Western idea of respecting human life, right? And then the second is, sometimes you're going to have to do things that you don't really understand and you may not totally want to do. So, for example, the women's class, 
that's called Rooted was first called Roots. And Nicole named it Roots, and she really liked that name because like Roots, like you're rooted in the ground like a tree, right? And then her biracial um, intern, Britt, was like, you, you, you can't call it Roots. She's like, well, why can't I call it Roots? And she's like, well, because black people, that's, that has a bunch of connotations for black people that we won't be thinking of tree roots, right? Like there was, li- there's literally this like famous documentary of the transatlantic slave trade in American slavery called Roots. It was like done in 1970 something. It was like redone in 2011. Like, and so she's like, that's weird. But, and I really like Roots better than anything else. So she called another black friend and she was like, can I call this class Roots? And he's like, yeah, n- you probably shouldn't call it Roots. And she's, and she's like, I, she's like, I, I feel like Roots feel, sounds cooler than Rooted. And then her husband was like, you know you've got to change the name, right? Like, and she's like, I know, ah! And so the class is called Rooted, right? It's, who cares, right? But it's just, it's, it's a trivial example on purpose. Like, you just naturally in hospitality do things that don't make total sense to you or that you don't feel because it is better for other people because of how they feel. And you just can't include people, and you just can't be—we just can't be one unless you're constantly doing that. But love requires that kind of flexibility, or there's no sacrifice, and there is no real biblical love without sacrifice. Those are all opportunities, right? And then lastly, you have to admit to yourself—I'm not going to do the, the Island Princess song, but you have to admit to yourself you don't want the circle of love to expand because you're afraid of what's going to happen to you, which is an inferiority complex that you're not dealing with that we all have. We're afraid that if the circle of people loved widens, and our, our concentration in that circle is more diffuse, we will start to get increasingly ignored. We will have less love for ourselves. We will have less security because we will be less centrally important for somebody to be there for us. Like, we lose. We all feel that way. And it actually comes from our sense of insecurity and our sense of pride, it comes from a sinful and broken place in us. And so the call to love isn't just about you loving the other person. Loving other people brings up the worst in you, which you wouldn't have dealt with and you wouldn't have faced otherwise. This happens every time we try to split up a small group. We say, hey, listen, you guys should like, you've got like nine leaders in your small group. We could make like nine small groups out of you. And you know what everybody says? We don't, we don't want to do that. We like our small group. And we, like, maybe we could all do a separate small group on the side or something, but we still have our small group. And then they do that for two months, and they quit that one, and they go back to their small group. Because nobody wants to expand the circle, right? It's kind of like, um, I had a picture of like, it's kind of like when you have a two-year-old and you have a new baby, and you bring the new baby home, and the other kid basically hates its guts, like right from the start. It's like that. Like, we all feel that. We're all that little kid. We're like, what's going to happen with mommy now? Like, is mommy always going to be available for me? And that, like, that's how you feel about your friends. That's how you feel about the people who love you. You're afraid that if you let those other people in, it's going to change things such that you're going to lose out. And it's way too humiliating to admit that about yourself. And so we don't want to. And so we just want to keep things the same. And we, we just justify that bad feeling. Right? Okay, so, like, lastly, we're not going to be able to sing a song at the end. I'm sorry about this. I need to hit this thing on, on hospitality again. There's something I call—I tell the staff—I call this on the staff team the golden nine minutes. Okay? When the service ends, you have between two and nine minutes to connect in hospitality with people who are not already connected. People who are not connected, who are not deeply rooted in the church, 
especially if they're a non-minority race or, or economic class or something, that what happens to those people is they don't have anybody to talk to. They don't want to introduce themselves to people who are talking with other people. So they get up and they walk out the door. And it happens in 20 seconds. Or they go, they get their children, and they walk out the door. And it takes two minutes and 20 seconds. And they're gone. And many of them will never come back. So I want to challenge. I want to challenge you. If you go to this church, and this is your church, and you're connected to people in this church, and when the service ends, you know you have friends that you can talk to. Do not talk to those people for the golden nine minutes. If they love Jesus and they love you, they'll hang around for nine minutes. It's fine. It's going to be fine. For the first two minutes especially, but for the first nine minutes, don't come talk to me and do not talk to them. You should talk to people you don't recognize. And you should see if they're connected and see what's going on and see if you can talk with them and share with them and see if they want to have a conversation. And you should signal to them that they're included and that we want them here and that we love them, that they could belong and that they could make friends here. Because people don't stay at churches because of preaching. People hear about preaching and then they show up and then they realize it's about as bad as the one that they heard before. Okay? And then in, in most churches, the preaching's fine to not terrible. Right? That's not why people stay. They stay because they make friends. They stay because they're included. They stay because they're known and understood and cared about. That's why people stay. So you can say to them, um, how long have you been attending High Point instead of are you new here? And then they might say, well, this is my first week. And then you're like, oh, wow. And then what I recommend is ask them two questions about themselves. Okay? Just any two questions you think are relevant that aren't embarrassing. And um, don't say like, well, what's the most embarrassing moment of your life? You know? Usually it's like, are you new to Madison? What do you do for lit? You know, like, it's like, you know, it's that kind of stuff. And if they answer those two questions, like, pretty robustly, then ask them a third question. If they're into the conversation, ask them more. Talk with them for the 10 minutes or whatever. Like, give them your attention. They're a creature made in God's image. And they might be your new best friend. Who knows, right? And if, and if they're not into the first two questions you ask them, they give you really short answers, then just be like, hey, it was great to meet you. And let them go. Does that make sense? And listen, and if you have a nice conversation, invite them to lunch and go to lunch with them and listen to them for an hour or two or whatever it takes to be hospitable, to expand the circle you're terrified to expand because of the purposes of the gospel. Does that make sense? That is one of the like, top four things that makes a difference between a church that is welcoming and loving and not. And I can't change that. But you can. And it can make an enormous difference in people's lives. It will, it will save souls. It will save lives. It will stop divorces. It will end depressions. It will give people a place to deal with their sexual addictions. It will do so much good. And it will start with you using the golden nine minutes for what it's for. It's a huge opportunity. And every one of you can be part of it. All right, let's end with prayer. We got to go get our kids out of that hullabaloo back there. <laughs> Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you set your attention on us. The most important thing about us, we confess, isn't what we set our attention on. It is that you set your attention on us. And nothing, not our sin, 
not our depravities, not our hatreds, has been able to distract and divert your loving attention on us. And we know that godliness is to become more like you. To have an unflappable attention on the things that are beautiful and good, of loving others and loving you and adoring you. And we pray that as a church, in all ways, you would make us a people who escape diversion and who embrace discipline, who give our attention to beautiful things and to retract our attention from things that are not good for us in what you want to do in us. Help us to be a people who give our attention to the right things and to the right people. And please transform us and help us to grasp how high and wide and deep and long is the love of Christ, the love of God displayed in Christ Jesus. Holy Spirit, change us as we do these things you've called us to. Help us to see what Ephesians is for, what it's doing, so we can see what you, Holy Spirit, are doing so that we can participate fully and freely and graciously in what you're doing. We pray that you would do this in us individually as a body together and make us great as your church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you stand for the benediction?